You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Lexi Elliott on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called How to Kill Your Best Friend. And uh, guys, this is this is a must read. This You've got to have this sitting next to your comfy reading chair uh, this summer. It, it's so, so much fun. You're going to love it. I know you will. Uh, welcome to the show, Lexi. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and uh, thank you for saying such lovely things. Oh, you're you're so welcome. They're very well deserved. Uh, Lexi, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, that is an interesting question. Um, well, I think as soon as I understood that books were written by people and didn't just, you know, spontaneously come into being, then that was what I wanted to do. Um, and I grew up uh, at the foot of the Highlands, very rural part of Scotland. And I went to a primary school. Primary school in, in Scotland is between the ages of five and 12. I went to a very small school that had in total 26 people. So we didn't have, you know, big facilities for library or anything. And sure. what we actually had was a library bus that came around, I can't remember whether it was every week or two weeks, but you would get to go into the library bus by yourself and speak with the librarian and she would help guide you as to, to what books you wanted. And I just absolutely loved that library bus. And I think, you know, the combination of that and the fact that, you know, I was, uh, I, I was likely to be a strong reader anyway. Books were very much encouraged at home, um, really sparked my interest. And, and I, I almost don't remember not wanting to be a writer. I love that. Do you remember if there was a, a particular book or maybe it was an author that you fell in love with or a book series that that really let you know um, that stories could transport you to a new place and another time? I think, you know, the, the ones that were really influential to me were more around my teens when I started reading things like um, Margaret Atwood and Sherry S. Tepper. Uh, Margaret Atwood, um, just, you know, obviously so iconic. And in particular, her um, short stories, I believe the book's called The Wilderness Tips, really opened my eyes to, you know, in fact, the, the literary form of the short story and what you could do with that. Um, and then Sherry S. Tepper's book Grass, which, you know, won a ton of awards, was just it was so wonderful in terms of, you know, world building within the fantasy genre, but without in any way um, sacrificing the character development and the arc. And the combination of those two really, really um, sparked uh, thoughts for me of how you could take writing forward. I love it. Um, Lexi, as with uh, a lot of writers, um, 
there's this early desire to tell stories and you, you fall in love with books and, and stories and invariably there's uh, you know that life gets in the way of your of your plans to to be a writer oh, yes. and you know you have to pay bills and you know or start a family or you know all of the responsibilities that come with being an adult and and writing has a way of coming back around um what was your path like yeah so um at, at high school really i was um i was a good student and i um could have followed uh the route of doing english at university but also i was very strong mathematically and was looking at doing physics and i suppose at that point i felt you know that the better route in terms of you know being able to have a a future profession that would pay the bills the the better route was was physics and in fact that's what i did i went to um oxford university did a degree in physics um was rather out of my depth to begin with for the first year i think um until we kind of hit exams and realized i was doing fine i i suffered very much from imposter syndrome like many people can do um, oh sure it seems to be particularly strong with women um, <laughs> and then I realized that actually I was doing just fine um, and when it got to the point of uh, people starting to apply for jobs um, all my friends were going for um, jobs as like management consultants and investment bankers and I didn't even know what those professions were I mean up in rural Scotland that was not what people people's parents did I didn't have any access to the, those kind of career opportunities or understanding even what they were um, and I had the opportunity in fact my my tutors were encouraging me to do a PhD so I stayed on at Oxford and did a PhD so I spent seven years at Oxford which were wonderful and I highly recommend to anyone who has the opportunity um, and then after I'd done my PhD that's when I went to work for an investment bank when I figured out what it was all about. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was at the bank for uh, a good long while, um, paying bills, as you say, and and I was always writing, um, generally short stories, some poetry that's probably best kept in a, a drawer somewhere. Um, and <laughs> I hadn't quite got round to thinking that I was ready or able to start a novel um, until I uh, lost my banking job um, during the global financial crisis, like like many people did, and I had some some time at home with a a young child um, that became two young children, and I thought really hard about you know what I wanted to do to preserve a bit of me and and my dreams and my hopes, and and ultimately, although I went back into uh, into the city in asset management rather than investment banking. I, I had started a novel by then, and ultimately, the my first novel, The French Girl, um, got published. And now I'm you know, obviously I've just had my third novel published yesterday, and um, I'm writing my fourth. The French Girl was your your first novel to be published, but uh, was this the first novel that you had written? No, I, I did write one before and I, I sometimes think that I will, you know, spend some time. I think I could clean it up a bit, maybe mess around with the themes a bit. Um, it's not 
it's not terrible, but it's definitely a starter novel as it is at the moment. You learn an awful lot, I think, in the in the first novel that you ever write. And and so you should, you know, uh, writing is a craft uh, like anything else. It, it's going to require an awful lot of practice to to get better at it. Sure. You know, I, I've heard numerous stories from from writers about that first novel that's published. Some people um take brandon sanderson the the uh the acclaimed fantasy writer who was on the show a few years ago and and he wrote something like 13 novels uh before his first one sold and and was eventually published um other people wrote a novel and just kept working on that one novel for years and years and years until it you know got into the shape um that they could sell it, um, you know, as someone who wrote a novel and, you know, put that in the in the desk drawer or the trunk or, you know, whatever the um, the um, the analogy we used um, and, and moved on to, to write the French girl that that did get published and, and sold at market. Um, what do you think that is um, about um, about the work itself that that, uh, you know, gets you to to move on to a new story idea or stick with the the original story idea to keep working on it what it at what point in the process do you know you know it's time to move on and try something else um i i think that in in that particular case i felt like uh it wasn't the writing that was the problem. It was just maybe not a strong enough premise. So in that case, moving on was the obvious thing. And also, I just had a better idea. You know, the French girl was a a better um, setup altogether and had hooked me into wanting to write it and in fact it was something that had been kicking around in my head um since my my mid-20s and I think it over time evolved into something that I could really see myself writing properly I almost don't know why I didn't start with that but you know I didn't um and then of course there's uh if you're lucky enough to have um good people in your in your writing life to help you I have a a wonderful agent Marcy um who is pretty much my first and only reader before publication obviously <laughs> accepting my publishing house obviously um but Marcy uh Marcy's opinion was really you should you should focus on the French girl it's a much much stronger better book keep going with that the French Girl was your first book to publish, and then you followed that up with The Missing Years and now How to Kill Your Best Friend. You have really carved out a spot for yourself in psychological thrillers and, and crime thrillers. What was it that originally uh, piqued your interest with with this uh, with this genre and this type of story? I suppose um, it's for me the the thriller aspect the mystery aspect gives you a really great scaffolding on which to pin everything else that you want to also discuss because there are inevitably other themes it's it's not all about you know who done it it's clearly about the relationships and um 
the past and the and the present and the intertwining of people's you know small simmering resentments and um and dashed hopes and so on and there are different things that you that you want to explore but when you have the scaffolding of the the mystery within the book then it's much clearer to be able to do that and keep the keep the pace of the of the novel moving um i would say that like most writers you you don't necessarily set out saying okay i am going to be you know a psychological thriller queen you set out saying i i'm going to write a book and then somebody tells you that fits in the psychological thriller category normally somebody at a publishing house and then they also want you to continue in that in that category which you know i'm very happy to do but i also think that at some point i may write in in other genres also you know I have other stories within me that wouldn't fit into the that um that categorization with the the French girl um do you remember what that uh what that better premise was uh when when you conceived of that book yeah I think um I think the the French girl um it it really the thing that that perhaps um stood out with that was um the group of friends when you look at them uh 10 years later versus something pivotal that happened you know just kind of at the end of their university days a, a little bit of a big chill factor to it i think that um provided a pretty good hook and then the the standout point was and and it's not really a, a spoiler to say this um that the the character who is the French girl who is dead by page two, um, you know, she she found a way to uh, to really make her mark on the on the manuscript and um, and if you like build up her part. And I think that really makes it um, something a little bit different. And I think that's why it you know garnered a, a really good reaction from from the the publishing houses. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. 
build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com I like the way that you um, talked about psychological thrillers uh, a little while ago uh, in saying that they're, they're really stories about other things that we get to talk about. We just couch them in this really page turning way this, uh, you know, there's emotional drama um, that, that keeps you invested in the story. And that's one of the best ways that, that I've uh, heard someone talk about psychological thrillers because I've had people ask me before, you know, well, well, why do you think I would like this book? And, And sometimes you, you kind of, you know, stammer around looking for a way to describe it. But that's really it is we, we get to talk about really important interpersonal things and and just happen to couch it in a story that that keeps us excited, our, our blood pumping. Um, do you when you first start conceiving of a book, do you think of the. Uh, how do I say this? The. um the points that you want to get across or the the uh, the emotions that you want to explore or the relationships that you want to explore at what point of kind of thinking about the novel before you start writing do those uh, does the the meaning of the book start to seep in that's a good question and and I think it probably changes um from book to book, I on, on certain books I've had a very firm idea, and on others I've slightly surprised myself. I think, I think the the main theme is probably there when I start. So you know, for example, in the missing years, I was really wanting to um, explore the relationship between two sisters who hadn't been brought up together quite distanced in terms of um you know the age gap and then also um in the their experiences of childhood despite you know sharing 
sharing parent but um and then other things start creeping in and you go oh that's interesting I actually oh I, I must have been thinking about that underneath and I didn't quite realize I was um so yeah probably the main theme is there and then other things might start to come in but I, I remember, you know, just on this um, this point of you, you don't always know what you're writing about when you're writing. And then afterwards you go, huh, ah, I get it. Um, I, I once wrote a, a short story, which was was actually a very important short story because it, it won an award. And that made me think I can really do this and I could maybe step up to the novel format. And I when I started that, I thought I was really just writing about um, a university experience and when I finished it, I realized I was writing about the death of my grandfather. Um, so I'd come quite far in that within <laughs> within a short story. Um, but I but I would never when I started that, I did not know it was going to be, you know, all tied up with the death of my grandfather. Lexi, I know that that water has been very important to you in your life and, and that you um, uh, have have uh, been a swimmer for a long time, played water polo and 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 all of that. Um, and I know that that you didn't uh, uh, come up with the book covers uh, for your books um, specifically. You know, the, the most of the time our publishers uh, have people that work on that. Um, and but one thing that really intrigued me is the French Girl and How to Kill Your Best Friend both um, feature water and and people mm-hmm. you know, swimming and prominently on the cover. And I just I I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, how how much does um, these other aspects of your life that are not writing, swimming, et cetera, how much does do those things seep into the stories that you tell? Well, I first like to say I'm very glad I'm not the person who develops the, the covers because they wouldn't be anywhere near <laughs> as good as they are. Um, I think Berkeley have an absolutely fantastic art department and sure. I, I love what they put together. Um, they do ask for my opinion, so um, it's quite possible that we end up swaying towards the water because <laughs> I prefer it. Um, but the, yeah, I think, look, uh, it's, it's hard for um, any writer to say that their experiences don't don't seep into novels. Of course they do. We're all writing from um, you know what's inside our head and and what makes us the people that we are. And uh, the clearly how to call your best friend is very steeped in uh, in chlorine and much as my life has been really. And I often write. Um, women who are um, smart, uh, thoughtful and uh, driven and they usually are people who think about going to the gym or think about how they keep fit or have some competitive aspect to them uh, somewhere because that is, you know, the people around me and the friends that I have, you know, we we all think that way and so I, I guess that comes in there as well but the for for how to kill your best friend it's it's a very strong aspect the the open water swimming and clearly that's something that I didn't need to do too much specific research for because I guess I've been researching for it for a for a great deal of my life and uh, I'm very familiar with that world and setting is is so very important to me and to feel like I know the setting that I'm writing within and um 
certainly I, I had that for for the swimming aspects of how to kill your best friend. I, I love talking about the creative process, um, Lexi, the um, and the point of the creative process that that borders the closest to just pure magic um, is that that initial spark of inspiration for a book and for for as many different people as there are writers that the process is that different. Um, it, no one has a process exactly the same. Um, but mm. at, at one moment in time, uh, for you, how to kill your best friend did not exist in any form or fashion. It just didn't <laughs> exist. And then either a character um, walked onto the stage of your mind and then, you know, you're intrigued. Well, what is she all about? And, you know, and then you start following her or maybe you think of a premise. Maybe it's watching a, a news program or hearing uh, people talk overhearing something at a coffee shop maybe and then you start playing that what if game and then those characters come in and inhabit that and then in in some form or fashion how to kill your best friend does exist and then it's your job as the writer to excavate that story and and, and dig it out and and you know then we're holding this book in our hand what is that what was that first moment of inspiration for how to kill your best friend it was actually the title. Um, the title popped into my head when I was searching around for, you know, my next project. I'd just finished The Missing Years, gone through, you know, the, the copy edit process and was thinking about what I would turn my hand to next. And that title came into my head and I just thought, wow, OK, well, why would you even want to do that? And then the sto the, the storyline started to to come out for me thinking about the the friendship groups and and so on and i happened to be um on holiday this was pre covid when when everybody could travel so much easier <laughs> and i was on holiday somewhere and that that kind of remote island setting was very much presented to me by just where i happened to be when i thought of that title and so it, the 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 story unfolded from there, I would say. But yeah, it was the title. And, um, you know, I'm not normally someone who um, comes up with good titles. Um, the French Girl and the Missing Years were retitled in the process of production of those books. And um, this one is stuck, though. I'm very pleased to say I have got I have got the title I wanted on the book. <laughs> well, you, you've got this fascinating cast of characters with Braun and George uh, Georgie and Lissa, um, how did you know you've got this great title and and that sparks all sorts of imagination? But when did these uh, these really fully formed characters come in? Yeah, so pretty soon after um, after the title occurring to me, I started to um, to see uh, Lissa and Georgie, and then Braun. Braun arrived soon after that, but um, what, what really kind of helped me with Braun was realizing that I needed to have a dual narrative. Um, and I was worried because I hadn't written uh, from, from two points of view before. And I was worried that I would um, maybe 
uh, misweight the book, shall we say, you slant it too much in one or another direction or have too much sympathy for one or the other. And actually, um, it, it wasn't like that at all. And I, I ended up feeling very, very comfortable with, with both characters and, and understanding them both and loving them both, even though they're very, very different. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, it, it, it was Lissa and George first, and and Braun after. You um you have a fascinating narrative style that runs through the book, and and the beginning of uh, chapters are this anonymous uh, narrator who's talking to us, and you know, um, do we trust this narrator? Who is it? What clues can we get from it? Um. How did how did that decision to to work that narrative style come in? Uh, I just I in fact you know the the first um, you know method method one at the beginning of the the book um, that was in fact the first thing I wrote and it was fun you know I just was really enjoying writing that and. Um, and so I thought, yeah, just, well, we, uh, I'm going to keep this going. And it led to some really entertaining conversations with my children who would come back from school and say, oh, I thought of a new way you can kill someone. <laughs> and we would have all these... <laughs> I mean, it's not the normal post-school conversation, but, you know, so far they don't appear to need any therapy. Um, <laughs> they've come up with some really entertaining ideas, some of which made it into the book. But... <laughs> But, you know, if you're having fun when you're writing, um, I mean, within reason, uh, because there's always the point where you you have to be you have to take that step back and um, really distance yourself and, and look at it um, a lot more objectively. But but it, certainly if you're having fun as opposed to boring yourself when you're writing, then it's much more likely that the, the reader will be enjoying themselves, too. The um, the other interesting style um, that. Uh, that you start to realize as the book goes on is that um, some of the um, the the narratives from different characters sort of blend in and out of each other. And um, there's this interesting thing that happens where the the group collective uh, almost acts as a single character and then back out. And it, it's this really interesting interplay between, um, you know, how friendships work and how we become close to one another and and then yet can see the things that that separate us um how close do you get to your characters when you're writing them oh very i mean they they live inside my head completely um and uh p people ask things like oh you know if, it, if they made a movie out of any of your novels who would play the characters and i think well uh, they are themselves they're people i can't I can't imagine anyone else because they live, breathe, talk. I know what they look like. They're they're inside my head running around. Um, so, yeah, very, very close. But I think the, the point that you were making about the, um, the group collective is kind of an interesting one because what you can do with a dual narrative is you can put forward different points of view on on the same situation and you can make the reader um, question or at least consider um, a different angle to things and then of course you've you've not only got the, the the two narrators you've got the response from the other characters and then you start to see 
that everything can be interpreted in many different ways. This is such a fascinating book. I, I can't wait for everyone to get their hands on it. Um, it was so much fun. Um, at the end of the book, um, when people close that back cover, what do you hope they're left with? Um, well, I hope they've really enjoyed it. And I hope they uh, want to read anything else and everything else that I write. Um, but but really, I, I hope they come away feeling a sense of satisfaction because sometimes people uh, write novels where I feel like their intention is to say at the end, ah, gotcha, to the reader. But it's not a satisfactory, um, it's not a satisfactory read because it doesn't feel in keeping with the character arcs and and the development within the story. It just feels like somebody set out to to be able to say gotcha, um, and I and and I wouldn't do that. I think that the the character development is very very important. And when I'm writing and part of Part of the writing process for me that I find most enjoyable is when the characters do start to, you know, push things in their own way because then you're you're getting a real kind of genuine response of where they would go. And I I I, I will never be in a position of making a character do something that feels awkward or, or not not realistic. Um, and so I hope they feel like they've read something that is, you know, um, literarily well done um, and enjoying and, and has an emotional satisfaction to them. How to Kill Your Best Friend is available everywhere now when you're hearing this. Uh, you can grab it in hardcover or Kindle edition if you want to read on your Kindle or audiobook. Uh, Lexi, have you listened to the audiobook yet? I have not been able to yet, I'm afraid. <laughs> I can't wait to. Uh, I, 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 I have, I have actually, you know, um, uh, spoken to the production team and I've heard um, some snippets from the people who are doing the reading, so I'm sure it's going to be fun. Well, I've read the the physical arc of it, and I can't wait to hear this uh, acted out by a, a great narrator. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick it up soon and, and check that out. As, uh, as we hope all of you listening will, there's going to be links to all those different ways that you can grab it in the show notes of this episode. Lexi, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? So um, they can go to LexiElliott.com and they'll be able to see um, links to my bio and, uh, and the French girl and the missing years. Excellent. We'll put links to that in the show notes as well. How to Kill Your Best Friend, available everywhere now. Go grab it today. Either use the links in the show notes or go visit your local bookstore, and uh, and, and let's do good stuff for local bookstores. Uh, Lexi, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Nice to talk with you. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter One. The army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51. 
a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague, destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us, Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that but there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages, worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales, green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, 
rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, Look no farther than Pico's house. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's house is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.